Good morning. Our sermon this morning is found, or the scripture for this morning's sermon is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. You will see it on the screens, and you can also find it in the Pew Bible, page 837. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Well, at this time, we're going to dismiss children ages four through kindergarten, as well as those who want to experience the sermon in an ESL class, English as Second Language, in the cafe. And I'll just acknowledge ESL is a term that's going out of vogue in some ways because people like Alunga know of three and four languages. It's not a second language. We're very thankful for what's happening. Join me in prayer one more time. We'll turn our attention to God's word. Lord, I feel in a similar situation as one with five little loaves and two little fish and a lot of people to feed. Lord, would you show yourself strong and big and kind? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we preached last year and the year before that through the book of Exodus, a couple times I mentioned a quote from a theologian named J.I. Packer. Fifty years ago, actually to the year, Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. Many Christians, including me, still find it helpful. In the introduction of the book, Packer describes the predicament of modern Christians, so We're now 50 years later, but I feel it in a similar way, if not more so. The predicament of modern 
Christians was this. He said, it's as though we're looking at God through a telescope. And some of you may have remembered me saying this. It's as though we're looking at God through a telescope, but the telescope has been turned around the wrong way so that God looks small. And when God looks small, Christians become small. And what I said as we studied the book of Exodus is though it's, it's as though God takes that telescope and he turns it around the right way so we can see him as big as he really is, or at least closer to as big as he really is. What God does in the gospel of John is he climbs down that telescope and he pitches his tent among us. That's the language used in John chapter 1. It's a wonderful thing. But the incarnation presents a particular challenge. Just because he's here among us and one of us, we have to keep remembering he's also not one of us. He's both one of us and not one of us at the same way or at the same time. The challenge of God coming down among us in the person of Jesus is that we don't forget he's still bigger and better than he might at first seem. Jesus came not to give us small versions of our abundant life, but rather to give us his big version of abundant life. That's that's what this passage is about. So the question, I'll say, that hangs over this passage for us is to ask whether our Jesus, as we receive him, our version of him, so to speak, is too small. I'll show you what I mean. First, this passage talks about a disciple named Philip. Now, we don't have a whole lot on Philip as compared to someone like Peter. Peter talks a lot. Philip only a little bit, but he features prominently here. Let me read the opening again. Hopefully you have John chapter 6 open in front of you. I'm going to be reading from it several times. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Here's how this story begins. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. It's this area that has two names, kind of like Mount Rainier or Mount Washington. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. It's an important detail. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself, Jesus, knew what he would do. The Sea of Galilee, that's this pear-shaped lake. It's pretty, pretty huge, honestly. It's 13 miles by 7 miles. It's at the northern part of Jerusalem where Jesus is at at this time with his disciples, and they're on the northeast side of that. We know that from other passages. And there's a crowd. Why is the crowd there? We're told in verse 2. A large crowd was following him because, what does it say? Because they saw the signs, that's an important word in John, the signs that he was doing among who? The sick. Now, some of you have been to urgent care. 
you've been to the emergency room, and there's been a long line. I will tell you, you've never seen a long line like this line that was there with Jesus. Rumors of the signs that he was doing spread. Rumors of these healings. Indeed, not simply of the healings, but the healer. And a crowd drew a crowd, drew a crowd, drew a crowd, which likely was a desperate crowd. Jesus, Jesus, can, can, can you heal my son? Jesus, can you heal my wife and my, my child? She's pregnant. I, she, I don't know what's going on. Something's happening. Can you, can you heal this? They didn't have where else to go. So they went to him. A crowd drew a crowd. This grassy hillside was not, I suspect, a comfortable setting. In another account of this same story in the Gospel of Mark, we're told that the disciples were so busy that they didn't have time to eat themselves. Mark 6, 31. And did you notice the question Jesus asked and who he asked it to? He picks Philip and he asks where they can get food. Why do you think he asked Philip? That's a question I had as I was reading this. Why, why Philip? John 1.44 says that Philip was from this area. He's the local. It's like when I see someone post, hey, I'm in Philly. Where do I get the best cheesesteak, right? And all the, the locals chime in with their intel. So Jesus picks Philip. Hey, Philip. Looks like they might be hungry. Where do we grab food around here? Now, maybe Philip was the disciple most aware then of the sacrifice the crowd was making to be around Jesus. Maybe Philip was even getting a little frustrated with Jesus. In another gospel account of this story, the disciples collectively come to Jesus to tell Jesus that he should send the crowd away because they're in a remote and desolate place and there's nowhere here to buy food. Jesus, they feel, is actually being irresponsible. Look how Philip responds, verses 7, 8, and 9. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, but what are they for so many? Philip's answer to Jesus is supposed to be ridiculous. You can see it in the wording. He picks an amount of money that feels to him impossibly large, 200 denarii, maybe eight months' wages. And, and then he says that even if we had this impossibly large amount of cash right here, right now, and we could buy food, which we can't, how would that be even be enough for everybody to even get a little? Even as Jesus is miraculously, supernaturally healing people, it can be hard for disciples to remember that just because he's one of us, that he's also not one of us. Jesus started to feel small. And to make it more personal, I'll put it like this. I, I think about this sometimes, this story, sometimes when marriages are hard. Now, if you're not married or your marriage is not hard, you can insert some other hard circumstances. But people often think, as a pastor, that I'm merely saying there are two options. Option A and option B. Option A is to keep your vows in a lousy marriage. Grind it out. Or option B, in the marriage. 
in situations like this, when both people at least seem to want to follow Jesus, what, what, what I'm trying to do is put before them another option. That Jesus might create option C. A pathway to blessing that they can't see right now, and it may be a long ways off, and it may be a very, very hard road to walk, but I'm trying to say Jesus can create something from nothing. He's big enough for that. Philip can't see that, and sometimes we can't either. Then there's the crowd. Seeing Jesus as small isn't only a problem for Philip, it's a problem for the crowd as well. Verse 4, there's this detail about the Jewish Passover. That's an important little note. Passover is a celebration of when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. I'll say it another way. Passover is a celebration of when God went into a hostage negotiation with the most powerful man of the most powerful nation in all the world, And he crippled that man and that nation so that the whole world would know that God is really big and that he loves his people. That's Passover. In some ways, we could liken Passover, in some ways, but not always, in some ways, we could liken it to the 4th of July in this regard. It's the time when America declared her dependence from British rule. Passover, like 4th of July, is a time of intense nationalistic zeal. It's a, it's a time for patriotism, right? This caused tensions in Israel because at the time, Israel wasn't in charge of Israel. Rome was in charge of Israel. So you might imagine how celebrating Passover might be, shall we say, charged. Passover celebrated the time when God overthrew those who were over God's people, and there were many people now wondering, could God perhaps do the same thing? I've used this illustration before, but I find it helpful, so I'll use it again. Now imagine that Canada became the superpower of superpowers, all right? Nobody chuckled there. Uh, I didn't mean that to be. But so Canada becomes superpower of superpowers, and they actually invade the United States. And they invade the United States, they conquer the United States, now we're friendly nations and so on and so forth, this is not going to happen, but they invade the United States, and now because America is so big, and there's so many of us, Canada basically as a ruling strategy decides to basically let us do our own things, but still find ways to subjugate us, and help us know that we're not in charge, like taxes, for example, we have to say we pay exorbitant taxes to Canada for their prosperity, or they patrol our streets with Canadian military, stuff like that. But then every year, July comes, and there's the 4th of July. Can you imagine the tension created if you were to put out little flags, little stars and stripes along your street? The bunting on your porch, those little circle flag fluffy things. Can you imagine the tension of shooting fireworks? All those would signal independence, and it would be charged. We'd be saying, hey, Canada... Just so you know, remember what we did to the British. In the same way, Israel, through Passover, was saying to Rome, just so you know, remember what God can do. Now back to the text. Back to the text. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The crowd goes nuts. How does the passage end? Verses 14, 15. 
When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed, notice capital, the prophet, the prophet who has come into the world. I'll explain. Verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That line about the prophet comes from something Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18. He said that God's going to send a prophet, the prophet, and you've got to listen to him. Shows up in the Gospel of John, the, Gospel, or, uh, the book of Acts a couple times. And the crowd makes this leap from the healings to the feeding to the prophet to the king. Which is great, right? Come on, Jesus. This is your moment. you got 5,000 men, women, maybe children, 15,000 people who get ready to enthrone you. But he just slips away. Just like in John chapter 5 when he heals the man who couldn't walk and he just slips away. What is that about? Why this pattern? Well, the crowd views Jesus too small. If Jesus had done merely another Passover, if he had become just another Moses who throws off another Rome or Egypt or whoever, then what? Because someday there'll be another Rome, another Egypt, another Babylon, another whoever. And Jesus is building a kingdom that's not of this world. Jesus came among them as one of them, but he was not one of them. And the signs that he was doing was to show them he was more. He was more than bread. Philip couldn't have imagined Jesus feeding the crowd, and the crowd couldn't imagine anything other than they're getting better than filling their bellies and becoming a puppet king. But that was too small. What are ways we make Jesus too small? Maybe like Philip, you can't even imagine him fixing something broken. Doesn't seem possible. Maybe like the crowd, you want Jesus to become useful to you. Here's another way we keep him small. Liberal theologians who have taught this passage are often offended by the supernatural components of the feeding of the thousand, which I don't know how you read the Bible, but that's another question. But, but like they're, they're offended by this, and so they'll take this account here of Jesus and come up with another explanation. Maybe, maybe this young boy and his little fish and his little loaves, maybe that generosity just inspired everybody else to share the food that they had but didn't want to share. Like that's, a, that, that's what is said of this passage. And I think it would be more honest to just say what they really believe, which is that Jesus is small and therefore we're not going to believe the account of his word, the way it's written. Now, I, I, it's a bigger question. It's supernatural. Can it really happen? Right? That, that's a legitimate question to wrestle with. But it's more honest to wrestle with that question than to just take the plain reading of Scripture and make it say something it doesn't. To create a Jesus that's smaller and more manageable. Which is what many of us can do. We can refuse to take the plain account of him as presented to us and make a Jesus that's easier to control. To bring all of this together, I, I, I remember talking with a friend who was new to Christianity and 
number of people in his life who could coach him and help him. There's doctors and business partners and fitness partners and all sorts of things. And, and, and he, I asked if I could share this. And, and early on as he was considering Jesus, I remember asking the question, you know, the challenge for you will be whether you just add Jesus to your life or whether Jesus becomes your life. Whether he becomes useful or precious. And that tension at the start of the Christian life is a tension that continues throughout the Christian life. No matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, the challenge right now, no matter how many years we've been walking with him, is to see Jesus as precious for who he is. This is the huge deal of John chapter 6. It's going to become a, a giant conversation in about two weeks in the sermon. Of, of Who is Jesus? And is he just someone who fills our bellies? Is he a bread machine or is he the baker that we love? Well, this leads to the next part of the sermon. We need to spend time not merely thinking about the ways we treat Jesus as small. But we need to see the ways that John chapter 6 shows us he is big. Consider the ways he both sees and knows. You get the impression that Philip is almost a little impatient with Jesus. Like, come on Jesus, can't you see that all these healings are nice, but it's causing a problem? These people got to eat. We need to send them away. There's no way to get food around here. Notice the wording, though. Jesus sees and knows. Verses 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He's not asking the question to get more information. He's doing something there in Philip, and in the disciples, and in you, and in me. John tells the story of the feeding so that we see not merely the feeding, but we see that God sees and he knows. Whatever is going on in your life, you don't need to get God's attention so that he can see what's going on. As a pastor, you might have to get my attention. I can't see, I can't know everything or even very much. You got to call, you got to text, you got to email, you got to show up. Sometimes in my office, a little frustrated. That's okay. I understand. I don't see, I don't see it all. I, I don't know it all. But you don't have to get his attention, he might be getting yours which is what this language of testing is about. He wants you to be fully formed, fully mature, that your faith would be strong in him. He's testing you, us, you, yes, them, Philip, but he wants you to pass. Whatever trial you have, Jesus wants to become more precious to you as he shows himself as bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's one way John 6 presents Jesus as big. He sees and he knows. I'll also mention another way, he, that God puts blessings along the path of obedience. This one I'm going to spend a bit more time on, and, and to be honest, I'm just going to tell a long story. 
But I'll say the principle again and show you in the passage. Jesus is so big and wonderful and precious that he puts blessings along the path of obedience. Blessings his people couldn't have asked for or imagined. Let me reread the middle of the story again, verses 8 through 13. One of the disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what is that for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and they're not really loaves, they're like more like hard little pancakes probably. These barley loaves are small, like an English muffin is all it is. And when he had given thanks, he distributed it to them, to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Notice that phrase, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled, the 12, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Text says there was 5,000 men there. I don't think it highlights men because they were more important than women or children. John mentions 5,000 men, I think, because of the line about coming to take him by force. And when talking about who's important outside of Jesus in this passage, clearly the hero of the story is this little boy. So women and children matter. But regardless of, of why the number is what it is, the men were counted. There's, there's clearly more. Is there 15,000? Is there 20,000? Now, you and I can go to the store and get as much as we want for the most part of whatever it is we want, except for during COVID when you couldn't get toilet paper, right? Now, I'm not trying to be merely silly here, but think about this. In the ancient world, you couldn't do that. For them, food was like toilet paper for us during COVID. Jesus was giving out food to people who needed food, but who didn't know where their next meal might come from. That makes this line about the baskets, of these 12 baskets, so interesting. Each disciple would have gone around and collected food. That meant they'd walk up to people like a server at a restaurant and say, excuse me, are you going to finish that? Which is, just think again about the context, right? These are, these are people who are hungry, they need food, they've been with Jesus for a while, they're desperate, they don't know where their next meal is going to come from, and all of a sudden, free food just keeps coming out. And there would have been this pandemonium of like, oh, is this going to run out? And then it would have just settled into this time of like, oh, it doesn't look like it's going to run out. It doesn't look like it's going to run out. Put that in your purse. Put it in your bag to get that to-go box. And then literally the disciples walk around and go, all right, are you going to finish it? And eventually they just had to go, I am so stinking full, and we've filled every sack we have. Just put it back in the basket. And they come around and they have 12 baskets. That's how you get 12 baskets. Is they're so full, they give up trying to save it. This sign points to the abundance of Jesus for sure. But I'm pointing out something more specific. God puts blessings we can't imagine along the path of obedience. Philip likely thought Jesus would send them away, or Jesus, sorry, that Jesus should send them away. But that's not what Philip does. Jesus says, tell them to sit down, and that's what they do. And in that moment, Philip had to decide whether he should do what he thought was best or whether he should obey his Lord. Not knowing fully where obedience would lead or how it would work out, but at Christ's word, 
Philip told them, sit down. Let's see. And not only Philip and not only the other disciples and not only this boy who takes his little loaf and bread and says, I don't know what you'll do with this, but here it is. Not only all of them, but all of us who receive the real Jesus, we experience blessings along the path of obedience. And here's where I want to tell a long story as we close. It's a story about moving across the country. It's a story about planting a church, and it's a story about obedience and blessings that, I, that we can't anticipate. It goes like this. So about 10 years ago, I get a phone call from my friend Jason, who I'd known for 20 years. He knew me back in high school. And he was one of the pastors here, and he says, you want to consider coming pastor here? And I tell him, no. I'm here, right? So like, what happened? I tell him, no. Two reasons why. I had only recently begun my first pastorate, and I was thinking that the roots should go down into the soil and not be yanked out. So there's that. And then there's also this. I said no because when I moved to that pastorate, life got really hard. We lost all of our savings in a housing market crash. That's a 15-minute story. My wife had a miscarriage. The church that hired me changed my job description. We were near no family, and we moved three houses in 18 months. So no, I didn't want a new job because in my mind, all of that was linked. But I prayed, Lord, if you want to pull up roots, pull them up. We'll figure it out. I'll try to trust and obey. And then over the next six months, I can tell you that things started to change. It gave me freedom to feel like, okay, maybe we could talk about this. Circumstances at the church changed that freed up the possibility. And at one point during the interviews to come here, after I did apply, and that was way early, it became more official, and there was applicants and applications and interviews and all that. And I remember talking with Mike, who's now a dear friend, and I'm 2,000 miles away, and I'm standing outside, 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 a McDonald's play place, talking on the phone to Mike. My kids are inside playing. I think you were there inside, Brooke. Or I was just letting them play. I don't remember that part. <laughs> um, and I'm interviewing. And in the process of this conversation, Mike tells me about community's desire to play in a church. And I say, tell me more. You're going to play in a church? Tell me more. And Mike says, as he often does, that every church is a church plant. And he believes it's a biblical thing for churches to do. I agreed. He says then, we'd, like, it, 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 like crystal clear. Mike and I agreed this wasn't a deal breaker and that neither was necessarily better or worse. They're, these are your options that Christians and churches have before them. So I thought maybe I could work here. So I continued interviewing. Then months later, I come and I preach and the church has to vote on me. All of that, we're not in this building, we're in another building. And not only did they have to vote on me, but it's weird, I had to vote on you in my heart. Decide, do I want to be here? And some nine years later, I'm going to tell you a part of the story I've never told anyone except for a few of you in very small settings, in whispers. Part of me didn't want to come. I'll put it this way. I felt, I felt about 95% sure the Lord was saying, you got to go. You got to leave and you got to go. But I felt about 60, 40, 40, 60 
depending on the moment. I didn't want to be here, and I'm not going to go into the reasons why, because they don't matter anymore that much. But I can tell you, I'm not trying to be the hero of the story. I was conflicted. I felt like Philip. But what I can say is that something about that and very related to John 6, that God has put along the path of obedience blessings I could have never imagined. Indeed, it's not just that there are blessings in my life that would not have been here otherwise, but it's that Jesus has become the blessing along the path in ways I could have never anticipated, which is the sort of thing he does. I enjoy the living Jesus, and he is precious to me in ways far more abundantly than I could have ever thought or imagined. And and, and just to bring this story full circle, last year, we had the question in front of us, do we want to grow, as we've had for a while, do we want to grow to 500 or plant a church? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Did to me. Well, church, I'll tell you that I haven't really changed all that much. In that regard, I love seeing Mike and Pastor Ben and a hundred of you who are jazzed about this church plant. I'm not one of them. And I'm saying this because I think some of you probably feel the same. And you're wondering if it's okay to say it out loud. I just did. (laughs) And I'm in charge in some ways. And I'm saying, though, this, that I feel it is good and it is right and it is what we should be doing. I really believe that. I believe this is the obedient path for our church to take to become another church. And I believe, I truly do, that along this path for our church and this new church, that there will be blessings we could have never imagined. And we're going to struggle, and we're going to do it imperfectly. But even precisely because of that, there will be not only a hundred blessings, but there will be one big blessing, which is Jesus will become more precious. At least I hope. That's what I want to point us towards. In this passage, they wanted to come and make Jesus their puppet king by force. They wanted to call the shots. They wanted their obedience on their terms. And later Jesus, when he goes to die from this Gospel of John, John 18, 36, he says, this is this conversation fascinating with Pilate. He was about to kill him. And Jesus says, my kingdom, talking about king, my king is not of this world. My king were of this world. My servants would be been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. That is good news. That Jesus saves us, not merely from oppression from Rome or Egypt or from fill in the blank, but he saves us from God's wrath. He dies in our place so that we can be happy in him forever. And if Jesus, the real Jesus, the big Jesus, becomes precious to us in this life, he will be precious to you forever. I'm going to close in prayer and invite the worship team to lead us in song. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as you test us,
as you try us, as you put us in circumstances that we would not choose, may we rest that you do it for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray.